You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start today with a lurid story of murder for hire that spans Washington State and Southern California. Tatiana Remley had grown up in troubled times in San Diego. She never completed a traditional public school education. In fact, her last time in a classroom was fourth grade, and times were also troubled within the family dynamics. I think it would be fair to describe the home as tense. And in her early 20s, she had finally secured a job at an animal park, and she was doing some modeling. But according to Tatiana, her parents were helping to support her lifestyle. That was until she met and married Ken Woolcott. And upon meeting, the two immediately hit it off, despite Ken being 20 years older than Tatiana. So who's Ken Woolcott? Well, Ken grew up in a very middle-class family, but started his pathway to wealth by rising in the ranks at a San Diego pharmaceutical company. His taste of having some fluid money led him to dive headfirst into the real estate game, which became very lucrative for Ken. And he always had a love for basketball. So when Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz went looking for partners in 2001 to buy the Seattle Supersonics, he jumped at his chance to partially own the team. All these business ventures allowed Ken to amass a net worth of over $40 million. And that's when Tatiana enters the scene. And she's young, very beautiful, and ready to be the woman holding his arm. 
Now, before you judge Ken too sharply, he did have Tatiana sign a near ironclad prenup, which might have been one of the best business decisions that Ken made because the marriage lasted a grand total of 11 months. And the marriage might have been over, but the heartache, well, it had just begun. The two had a son during that 11-month span, and Tatiana, who of course didn't have a high school diploma, hadn't done anything to establish independence, despite Ken providing Tatiana with tutoring and the opportunity to get her GED. So what ensued was a years-long battle over custody and finances. In court documents from 2004, Ken claimed that Tatiana had purchased items while they were married. Then she returned those items and kept the cash. He stated in the court docs that he was unwilling to give her cash as she demonstrated during the marriage that she was unable to properly manage money. He also claimed that she stole funds from him and that the money was still available for her to live on. Well, not to be outdone, Tatiana responded in her own court filings that she was 24 years old without a high school diploma and she was caring for her 11-month-old son. She claimed she did not even make enough money to be required to file a tax return. She also said that Ken's financial worth made it possible for him to care for her and the son they shared. So Ken said he was fighting for custody of the child because Tatiana would forget to take their son to important medical appointments and that she refused to recognize his special needs. Ken also claimed that she wouldn't show up to her scheduled visits with their son. In the documents, he wrote that their son very much needed a mother in his life, but that history had taught everyone that Tatiana did not appreciate how badly her absence tears up their child. Ken also said through all the years that Tatiana never worked a traditional job and that he continued to pay for their son's medical and living costs. And despite that ironclad prenup, Ken also continued to provide spousal support, like paying Tatiana's rent and some of her other bills. Now, during this whole span of a custody battle, Tatiana went on to have a child with another man who Ken claimed she was receiving $5,000 per month in support payments from that man. So grand total, Ken claimed Tatiana was getting $9,000 per month from the two men. He asserts she spent that money on herself and her horses, and she neglected the two children. He petitioned the court for full custody of his child by saying that Tatiana believes she is an exception to the rule, that she thinks she doesn't need to work when most other single mothers have to provide for their children. He also claimed that she was somehow living comfortably in Rancho Santa Fe, driving a late model Lexus, and also supporting her mother, all while pursuing her passion for horse training and riding. Now, Ken did win the custody battle after nearly a decade, and he took over sole care of their son. Well, Ken, despite the court battles and payments to his ex, he might have dodged a bullet, and so did four other men. The New York Post is reporting that Tatiana was engaged three times during the years-long custody battle between her and Ken. The Post is also reporting that she would target rich men at her polo club while pursuing relationships with other women. One of the men she had a relationship with sued Tatiana in 2009 for $4,000 in unpaid loans. Tatiana claimed it was just a gift, but the small claims judge sided with the man and she was ordered to pay back the money. 
Okay, so remember, I said four men along with Ken dodged the bullet. So who's the fourth man? There was Ken and three failed engagement. Who's the fourth? Well, in 2011, Tatiana met and married Mark Remley. Friends of the two told the New York Post that the two met in a Starbucks and hit it off immediately. She seems to have a pattern of hitting it off immediately with men. And according to court documents, Mark was a former vice president of Signal Corporation, and his net worth was listed at $30 million when the two married. But something was different this time around. Mark bankrolled every one of Tatiana's whims and desires. The couple shared a $2.3 million home in Del Mar, California, and that home was conveniently located near the Del Mar polo fields. They also had a vacation home in Hawaii, and eventually they purchased two other properties with their names attached. Tatiana had a dream of producing a horse show, similar to the popular Cavalia show. Okay, so think of equestrian mixed with acrobatics and blending that all together for a highly produced show that people would buy tickets to watch, except people didn't want to watch this one. The two set up a corporation called Equestria Development that included the new horse show named Volatar, but it failed pretty quickly, and Mark filed bankruptcy for that corporation in 2012. But that wasn't the end of pressing the limits and trying the unknown for the two. In 2017, they joined the cast of the Showtime series Naked Sanctum. I didn't know about this series, and Sanctum is spelled in all capital letters, And there's no vowels, so it's just S-N-C-T-M, so Naked Sanctum. Okay, this is a private members club in California, and it provides high-end sexual experiences with multiple partners. In order to attend a Sanctum Soiree, yeah, that's what they call them. I went to the website. They're called Soirees. You must send in photos of yourself and an application to be approved for the guest list, And their website says they screen for aesthetic appeal, professional status, and what the applicant will contribute to the sanctum community. Well, Mark said at the beginning of their relationship, they weren't into the kind of lifestyle that sanctum offered. But as time grew on, their sexual relationship grew together and they opened up to that type of experience. And Mark's comments about how they grew together, well, that doesn't really quite shed light on the rest of the difficulties in the relationship. The couple filed for divorce and reconciled more than once since their 2011 marriage began. The most recent split happened in May of this year. Tatiana was the one to eventually file for divorce in July. And court documents filed by Tatiana claimed that Mark was physically and emotionally abusive to her. She wrote that Mark destroyed her property and had cut her off financially. She also claimed that some months she would spend up to $50,000 to support her lavish lifestyle. And the divorce filing asked the court to grant her $15,000 per month in spousal support and also exclusive use of the Del Mar home and the two trucks the couple own, as well as the horse trailer and an ATV. She also wanted custody of various pets that included goats and parrots. Now, the filing went on to claim that Mark once put a gun to Tatiana's head in front of an employee. And on another occasion, she claimed Mark chased her around their home with a knife. Now, gun violence was also contended in a previous divorce filing in 2015, where she said Mark had a meltdown about their failed horse show endeavor and that he discharged his firearm inside their home. 
And also during the latest divorce filing, Tatyana claimed she discovered a horse head had been broken off of a statue in their backyard and placed in their bed. I guess this is an attempt to recreate the famous Godfather scene, all while presumably scaring Tatyana. Okay, just days after that, at the beginning of July in this year, Tatyana said she had been hiding in an undisclosed location when she decided to return to the San Diego home. She said when she arrived, the house was on fire. And responding deputies found Tatyana on the property with three guns and loads of ammunition. She was arrested on firearm-related charges that day, and the arson of the home is still under investigation. Well, over the next months, things got even spicier. Court documents allege that Tatyana began negotiating with a friend to have Mark killed. And here's where I just might offer just a bit of advice. If in your friend circle, you share everything, including your spouse for sexual purposes, I wouldn't negotiate a murder for hire and think that the business transaction would be kept secret. And it wasn't kept secret with these two either. Friends immediately told Mark about the plot and Mark went to the police. Now, over the next two weeks, the police set up a sting operation meant to entrap Tatyana into confessing to the murder-for-hire plot. And not much has been revealed about that sting, but police are confident they got what they needed because Tatyana was arrested at a Starbucks on August 2nd. Okay, what's up with this lady in Starbucks? Everything seems to happen centralized around Starbucks. But what we do know is she provided detailed information on how she wanted her husband killed and how she preferred the body to be disposed of. Now, police have charged her with carrying a loaded weapon in a public place and solicitation of murder. So what about Mark? Well, the Daily Mail is reporting that on the same day the news of the murder-for-hire plot was revealed, Mark roared up in a black Ferrari to his Del Mar property home, but he instead went to a neighbor's door begging for help saying he was having a seizure. The neighbor told the Daily Mail that Mark was highly agitated and he looked absolutely terrible. Now, the neighbor assumed he was possibly detoxing from something, so the neighbor immediately calls 911 and Mark was taken to the hospital. And the Ferrari was left in front of the residences until three days later when friends of Mark's arrived in the neighborhood. They took the car and they put chains on the gates of the house. The neighbor also said that Mark didn't look to be his age of 57 years old. He said he looked more like 77 years old. Well, Tatyana has pleaded not guilty to the two gun charges and the solicitation for murder charge. Her lawyers made a motion to have Tatyana released on $50,000 bail, and that motion was rejected by the judge. And she remains in the Las Colinas Detention Center. She will be back in court for a preliminary hearing on November 16th, so... I'll keep you updated on this wild story. And now to Duxbury, Massachusetts, where a grand jury has indicted a mother for killing her three children before trying to unsuccessfully take her own life. And this story is crushing, but I think it's an important one to tell. Patrick and Lindsay Clancy fell in love at first sight. At least that's how Patrick retells the feelings. He said he can remember the very moment that he fell in love with Lindsay, and that it was that kind of love at first sight that you only see in movies. The two quickly fell in love, and then they married. And Lindsay worked as a nurse, and Patrick worked for Microsoft. 
Well, things progressed, and they were blessed with three beautiful children, five-year-old Cora, three-year-old Dawson, and seven-month-old Callan. And Patrick said their love grew deeper as their home was blessed with each new child. He describes his wife with these words. The real Lindsay was generously loving and caring towards everyone, to me, our friends, our kids, our family, and her patients. If you noticed in his word choice there, he describes the real Lindsay in the past tense, that she was loving and caring. And that's not because Lindsay has died. Usually you hear that phraseology when someone's passed, but it's because Patrick feels the woman who has now been indicted for killing his children is not the same woman that he married. Her mental collapse after birthing their youngest child, Callan, led to the devastation that he walked into back in January of this year. So let's go back to just a few days before the murder. According to Fox News, Patrick was growing more and more concerned about the mental health struggles his wife was experiencing. She had, by January, been prescribed multiple anxiety medications and that her starting new and stopping old prescriptions was creating this sort of withdrawal response that had Patrick very concerned. And he says, according to court documents, that she was having the worst possible side effects from the benzodiazepines. Okay, before you jump to what I think is a very easy assumption, court documents note that Lindsay was never diagnosed with postpartum depression. That is not to indicate that she wasn't suffering from that possibly. I just want to be clear that she was being treated for anxiety. And I'm sure we could have a whole separate discussion on how often mental health challenges are misdiagnosed. But I want to make sure we understand the actualities of the case clearly. Okay, on January 22nd, Lindsay did attend a dinner date with Patrick and friends. And according to court documents, friends said she seemed fairly normal on that night, but she was mostly quiet and she kept to herself while scrolling on her phone. But then, just two days later, Lindsay asked Patrick to leave the home to run a couple of errands. The trip took Patrick about 30 minutes. And when he returned to his home and he walked in the door, he knew instantly that something was wrong. The house was too quiet, eerily quiet, in fact. Quickly, he noticed blood and he started searching. He found his wife outside on the ground, conscious but unable to move. She had used a knife to slice both of her wrists before jumping out of a second-story window and falling more than 20 feet to the ground below. She painfully whispered to Patrick that the children were in the basement. Patrick was on the phone with emergency services when he fled to the basement to find the horrifying scene. First responders heard his screaming as he discovered that Lindsay had used exercise bands to strangle all three children. When EMS arrived, they declared the two older children, Cora and Dawson, dead. Little seven-month-old Callan was scooped up by medical personnel and transferred to the hospital. And Lindsay was transferred to the hospital as well. Brave little Callan died two weeks later. So all of this horror happened in January. So why now? Why do authorities in the grand jury feel that it was premeditated murder? Well, over the last nine months, they have been slowly building a case where they say Lindsay plotted to kill her children and asked her husband to pick up food at a restaurant in Plymouth to ensure she would have enough time to commit the slayings and then to kill herself. 
Detectives have determined that Lindsay conducted internet searches trying to decide how long certain round-trip destinations in the area would take. They say she was trying to secure enough time by choosing a certain restaurant and then sending Patrick there. All right, following the indictment on Friday, Patrick's lawyers said that his client had done everything humanly possible to save his wife from her struggles. He said that in the end, the mental health care system failed Lindsay and the rest of the family. He also said he has faith that the criminal justice system will speak the truth about the facts that led to this unimaginable story. All right, so this is Patrick's lawyer. And that seems to be really soft language about the deaths of three kids. And you might imagine that he could be very harsh and he could be espousing that Lindsay should be held accountable and all the talking points they must teach at law school. But I think we're getting this softer version, this more neutral commenting, because Patrick has asked everyone to forgive Lindsay. He has said he has forgiven Lindsay, as well saying that Lindsay's very fibers of her soul are loving. He said he wishes that she can find peace. Now, Lindsay's lawyer says his client is paralyzed from the waist down and that she was suffering from being over-medicated on a number of psychiatric drugs, some of which caused suicidal or homicidal ideation. He told the district court that society fails miserably in treating women with postpartum depression or even postpartum psychosis. In his words, he said all they do is medicate, medicate, medicate. They just throw pills at you and then see how it turns out. Well, Lindsay is being held without bail and being treated at a medical facility. She will be arraigned within the next few weeks. And Patrick made such a detailed and well-written tribute to his children on the GoFundMe page that has raised over $1 million to help with medical bills and funeral expenses. So I'll just share a bit because it's so heartwarming. He said Cora was a cautious child who was a natural nurturer. She wouldn't leave the house without assigning someone to care for her two favorite baby dolls. She wanted to be a nurse like her mother and would practice doing well baby checkups on her new baby brother, Callan. Dawson was always willing to share his toys, even though he was only three. He loved trucks, tractors, dinosaurs, and the worker guys, as he called them, who would be outside building things. He, of course, caused mischief, but Patrick said it was always done with humor attached. And his tribute to baby Callan was heartbreaking. He said he was the easiest child of the three, the best sleeper, the least fussy. He was sitting up and gaining more independence. He said that even if his work day or home day hadn't gone so well, that Callan would heal him with his sweet laugh. He said perhaps that is why he held on at the hospital a little longer almost as a final gift to him to spare him as much pain as possible. He said as horrible as the hospital stay could be, he was grateful to feel his warmth until the very last moment. He finished by writing that his faith is that Callan felt his warmth as well until the end. Now I want to finish this story by reminding you listeners that a new hotline for those having suicidal thoughts was established this year. The lifeline can be reached by just dialing 988. All right, we'll finish with this quick update to the Alex Murdoch trial saga. Okay, Alex was convicted earlier this year of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie at their hunting lodge. 
Paul was the drunk boat driver who was being accused of killing Mallory Beach when he rammed the boat into a bridge column and Mallory was flung from the boat and died in the cold waters. And Alex was found to be lying in the deaths of Maggie and Paul. Remember during the trial, he said he wasn't there, but Paul's Snapchat video proved he was there during the deaths. That is the most quick, succinct way I can give you an idea of what we're talking about here. I could go on another two hours explaining everything that has to do with the Murdoch murders. But here we go. This is the newest. Well, defense attorneys for Alex filed a motion on September 5th asking for a new trial due to alleged jury tampering by Becky Hill. Okay, Becky is the kind and helpful court clerk that attended the trial. She became kind of known as this hospitable woman during the trial. Okay, the motion claims that her actions might have led to the abrupt dismissal of one juror right before deliberations began in the murder trial. Here's what the defense is claiming. The motion says Becky found a Facebook post from a man who was accusing his ex-wife of getting drunk and sharing information about the trial. Okay, that woman in the Facebook post, that was supposedly juror 785. When Becky was asked to produce the post, she said it had been removed. But then a coworker of Becky said she found another post on Facebook by the same guy apologizing for the initial post about the woman spilling the beans. Okay, this information was shared with the judge, but posts weren't provided to corroborate their claims. Then Becky was sent an email in which a Domino's employee reported that a coworker claimed to have had a conversation with her landlady about the case. The landlady was also supposedly juror 785. Now, the judge in the case was then made aware of the email about juror 785 sharing information. Authorities interviewed the Domino's employee and his fellow tenant at the apartment building. The defense is saying they knew nothing about juror 785, that when they were interviewed, they said they don't know anything about this woman or the case, and it's not their landlady. But prosecutors say they had enough evidence to dismiss juror 785. But one of the biggest issues is that Becky spoke to juror 785 individually, and that has frustrated the judge overseeing the case. He said it wasn't her place to interrogate a juror. However, he dismissed juror 785 anyway, just hours before deliberations were to begin. And it has now been determined juror 785 was pretty set on Alex being found guilty. So this dismissal might have dramatically changed the outcome of the trial. Becky also stepped out of bounds by giving out business cards to jurors and also creating personal relationships with them. She even went on to celebrate one of their birthdays with them. And Becky then went on to write a book titled Behind the Doors of Justice, The Murdoch Murders. In the book, she often refers to her experience as the clerk in the term we, like air quotes, we, as if she was part of the jurors and the process of deciding the guilt or innocence of Alec. She also appeared with three jurors on the Today Show following the guilty verdict. And the court documents claim that Becky betrayed her oath of office for money and fame. Now, this back and forth here about what jurors think she did and what jurors think she didn't do, I could talk about it for at least 10 minutes. But let's just suffice it to say that some jurors think the claims are ridiculous and others, they're just not so sure. 
And the Facebook post about the ex-wife spilling the tea about the cases while she was drunk? Well, that seems to be proven completely false at this point, but it was still cited as one of the reasons to remove juror 785. So we just don't know yet. The judge is yet to rule on these motions, and Alec will be back in court in November to face charges of stealing $3.5 million from the family of Gloria Satterfield. Now, Gloria is the first death that happened at the family hunting lodge, the one where the housekeeper fell down the stairs and died. And then the family is alleging that Alec kept all the insurance money from that death. The twists just keep continuing in this case. And of course, I'll keep you updated. All right, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. Big thank you to you guys for your suggestions and your five-star reviews. Um, I love building this community with you. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And of course, I love it when you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.